There are no spices. Where are the chips? Somebody stole them. Did you not tell them that they were the Lord's chips? I was trying to. Welcome to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. This is episode 78, Jesus as the Son of Man and Lord of Sabbath. This is Greg Hall, and in this episode, we dive deep into the intriguing titles that are attributed to Jesus, those of Son of Man and Lord. And we attempt to unravel their profound implications regarding Sabbath rest. We'll unravel the historical and theological significance of these titles and examine how they shed light on Jesus' teachings and interactions with the Sabbath. So, won't you join me as we discover the meaning cloaked within these titles and explore their relevance for our lives today? Well, welcome back to the podcast. Again, this is Greg Hall. I really appreciate it every time you decide to give me a listen. I don't take that lightly. And today we're continuing our look into the biblical idea of rest. And specifically, we're going to be looking at this statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 12, 8, when he says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's become maybe a familiar phrase to a lot of evangelicals, people that have read the Bible, very familiar with that phrase. But what we're going to do today is take it out of the land of being just familiar and repeatable, and we're going to dissect the phrase into its smaller parts. So in this first segment of the episode, we're going to look at this idea of son of man. I have a feeling that when we get to the end of this statement, the Lord of the Sabbath, that's where a lot of our conversation is happening about what what is it Jesus is meaning by this Lord of the Sabbath comment. And in so doing, in talking about the end of that statement, I think we often skip over just this idea that he referred to himself as the Son of Man. So we'll take a look first and foremost at what Son of Man means and trace that back into the Old Testament a bit. In the second part of today's episode, we will just take a look at what Lord means. And from a biblical standpoint, that title has a bit of history and significance. And again, because it's so familiar to us in modern vernacular, I think sometimes we scoot right over some of these very theologically significant statements that Jesus makes and the titles that he uses. So we'll take a look at Lord. And then uh, at the end, we're going to put everything back together and take a look a little bit at the context of this statement in the book of Matthew. What was it that Jesus was speaking to when he claimed that the Son of Man was Lord of the Sabbath? But before we get into the content of today's episode, I do just want to remind you I've got an Israel trip planned for February of 2024, but this isn't just any old Israel trip. It is a 10-day, pretty standard as far as where we're going. We're going to see the majority of the land, all the typical sites. But the thing that makes this trip different than most is I've got as a co-host 
a leading Old Testament scholar, Dr. John H. Walton. And if you join us, you will have the unique opportunity to travel around the land of Israel and listen to Dr. John Walton. And by the way, his wife is joining us, who is a working archaeologist in Israel. And the two of them together, along with whatever extra insights I might have along the way, it is going to be truly a unique opportunity. So if that sounds inviting to you, and it may not be you, it may be somebody you know that's always talked about going to the land of Israel. We don't have too many spots left, so I'm trying to get the word out and let people know that this is the opportunity of a lifetime. All the details are on my website, rethinkingscripture.com. And if you have further interest, just use that Connect tab, get in touch with me, and I can send you all the important details on how to get signed up. So with that, let's dive into today's topic and find out why it is that Jesus would have referred to himself as the Son of Man and then also claimed to be Lord of this idea of the Sabbath. I think it's important to begin, though, by just separating out, like I said, the different parts Let's focus in on this idea of the Son of Man. It is used quite often in the New Testament. Jesus refers to himself most often by this title. In this first section, I'm going to be referencing the Lexham Bible Dictionary, specifically the article entitled Son of Man, written by Hardin and Brown back in 2016. And they suggest that this is a phrase that is frequently used by Jesus to describe himself and his ministry. So where does Jesus get this phrase? Let's look at some of the sources from the Old Testament. This from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. The phrase son of man is found 93 times in Ezekiel. And in that context, it refers to the prophet's humanity. So just for an example, Ezekiel chapter 2 verse 1 says, Then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. So it's used a lot inside the book of Ezekiel. And again, in that context, mostly just using that phrase as a reference to Ezekiel's, the prophet's, humanity. When we go inside the poetry of the Old Testament, oftentimes Son of man is used in parallelisms. So these are statements that are in two parts where the first part is stated and the second part references or mimics the first part. They're in parallel. And it's often in, let's say, the book of Job and Psalms where the Son of Man is used in parallel with just being human. So, for instance, Job 35.8 says, Your wickedness is for a man like yourself, and your righteousness is for a son of man. And in the second half of that parallel structure, Son of Man is used to reflect or parallel a man. In other words, just a human. Psalm 8.4 has a similar statement. What is man that you take thought of him, and the Son of Man that you care for him? Again, parallel structure, Son of Man, always in the second half of that parallel structure, referring just to people's humanity. So you've got a whole slew of uses within the Old Testament of this term, Son of Man. And as we've said thus far, a lot of those references just refer to humanity in general, people being human. 
the Son of Man. And interesting, outside the Bible, uh, there's a divine apocalyptic figure known as the Son of Man. He appears in First Enoch and Fourth Ezra, and it's that figure in those books that seems to have influenced Jewish expectations of the Messiah before the time of Jesus. But arguably, the most critical source for understanding this phrase, Son of Man, is found in Daniel chapter 7. It's in this text where one like the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven. We see that in Daniel 7.13. Let's just talk about the context of Daniel 7, because it's Daniel 7 that Jesus probably has in mind when he refers to himself as the Son of Man. So according to the Bible Dictionary article, the context of Daniel 7 and its overreaching story also influenced the traditions regarding the phrase, the Son of Man. Uh, Josephus noted that Daniel was popular among first century Jews. He mentions that in his book of Antiquities. So Daniel's figure, uh, the Son of Man, likely serves as a key source for Jesus when he uses the Son of Man in his sayings. And it's important just to maybe in general talk about Daniel 7 being in the midst of a literary unit. Daniel chapters 2 through 7 is one literary unit, so it would be unfortunate just to read Daniel 7 and think we understand the whole context. It's within that literary unit, chapters 2 through 7, where the text is concerned with the pressure among the exiled Jews to worship the king of Babylon. Daniel, who's a prophet in exile, has a vision, and that vision reveals four beasts that rise out of the Mediterranean Sea to attack Israel. And it's the ten-horned fourth beast that spawns another little horn which raises against God and his people. As the beasts emerge to attack the faithful, the heavenly court is seated in judgment of them. It suggests that multiple thrones are set in place while God, referred to as the Ancient of Days, comes to take his seat. Then Daniel sees one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. That's Daniel 7.13. The phrase, one like a son of man, denotes a human-looking figure, but it's more than that. This figure is also given privileges normally reserved for God. He's given authority and glory and sovereign power and the worship of men of every language, as well as an eternal kingdom. So within its context, its bigger context, Daniel's vision is one of suffering and exaltation. The saints within this story both suffer at the hands of the little horn and simultaneously are given the kingdom along with its sovereignty and its power. As the beasts rage against Israel, the one like a son of man is ushered into the presence of God and he is enthroned. And so when Jesus uses this phrase, and again, it's the phrase that he uses most often to describe himself. He may have used Daniel's one like the Son of Man to communicate the ideas of suffering and victory. 
And this phrase would have been less politically charged than terms like Messiah or something like Son of David. Within this character of the Son of Man, Jesus found a paradigm of suffering and enthronement and authority. So let's just take a look at a few uses that Jesus had of the Son of Man. There are four general ways in which Jesus uses the Son of Man language within the Gospels. First, to refer to himself. Second, to describe his authority and earthly ministry. Third, to anticipate his suffering and death. And fourth, to anticipate his future exaltation and glory. So, for instance, Mark 2.10, Matthew 9.6, Luke 5.24, all record Jesus stating that the Son of Man has the authority on the earth to forgive sins. And oftentimes, when Jesus uses this phrase to describe himself, it's within the context of his authority being questioned by the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. In other places, Jesus uses Son of Man in relation to his earthly vocation and ministry. For example, Jesus emphasizes his earthly freedom and poverty when he states, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That's in Matthew 8.20. In Luke 19.10, Jesus uses the title to summarize the purpose of his ministry. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. And in Matthew 16, 13, Peter's well-known confession of Jesus as the Christ and Son of God is precipitated by Jesus' question concerning the Son of Man. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And Jesus' use of the Son of Man in the Gospel of John seems to simultaneously emphasize not just his earthly ministry and authority, but his heavenly enthronement as well. In the all-familiar John 3 passage, Jesus declares that no one has gone into heaven except he who came from heaven, the Son of Man. In chapter 5, verse 27, he says he has the authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. In John 6, 27, He says that God has placed his seal of approval on him as the Son of Man. And in 8.28, he says that only when the Son of Man is lifted up will his disciples understand his identity. So that's just a small portion of the examples we could go through where Jesus refers to himself using this title. And it was a title pregnant with meaning especially within that Jewish first century culture. People had an expectation of a Messiah coming, an earthly king to lead them to independence and military victory. But in referring to himself as the son of man rather than Messiah or son of David, what Jesus is doing is he's bringing in the suffering component of that character out of the book of Daniel certainly brings in the authority and the rulership and the kingdom and the power, but it also has the suffering element 
that was such a large portion of Jesus's ministry here on earth. So it's not by chance that Jesus specifically and surgically goes back into the Old Testament, pulls this Daniel 7 character, one like the Son of Man, one, by the way, who comes on the clouds not back to earth, but in Daniel's vision, the Son of Man is coming on the clouds from the heavenly perspective. He's coming from the earth into the throne room of heaven, and he is given the authority in that setting. And it's that character that Jesus most associates himself with as he explains what he's there to do in his earthly ministry. So today we're looking in more detail at the statement that Jesus made, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And in so doing, we have taken a extensive look at this idea of Son of Man. We've traced it back into the Old Testament. And now we're moving on to the middle part of the statement where he said he is Lord. And it's in the context of being Lord of the Sabbath, but let's not get to the Sabbath idea yet. Let's just focus in on what it meant when Jesus suggested that he was Lord of something, because this happened quite often. I did a search in my little Bible program about where this idea, Lord of something, just pops up in the Gospels, uh, in the whole New Testament, for that matter. In Matthew chapter 9, he's referred to as the Lord of the harvest. He's the Lord of the Sabbath in Matthew 12. Acts 10.36 refers to Jesus as Lord of all. 1 Corinthians says, Lord of glory. 2 Thessalonians suggests he's the Lord of peace. In 1 Timothy, and then again twice in the book of Revelation, he's referred to as the Lord of lords, which is just a really interesting repeat of the statement, right? And in Revelation 11.4, he is referred to as the Lord of the earth. So, let's just ask the question, what does it mean within the biblical context to call something or to refer to something as Lord. And it's probably best just to start with the idea that there are various Hebrew and Greek words in the Old and New Testament that are so rendered. In other words, that come into our English translations as the English word Lord. First in Hebrew, the most common is the word Adon. And that would most simply mean one that possesses absolute control. Adon. It denotes a master as of slaves in some contexts or a ruler of his subjects in other contexts. And sometimes it refers to a husband as lord of his wife. We see all of these meanings of master of slaves, ruler over his subjects, and as husbands. Adon is used all of those ways in the book of Genesis. And interestingly, the plural form of this Hebrew word is Adonai. You might recognize it as Adonai, with this emphasis on the first syllable. And from a superstitious reference of the name Jehovah, the proper name of God in the Old Testament, the Jews, when reading their scriptures, whenever that name occurred, the proper name of God, they would always pronounce Adonai in its place. 
And that was in an attempt to get around not saying the Lord's name in vain. They just wouldn't say it at all. And they replaced the proper name of the Hebrew God of Israel for this word, Lord, which is very interesting. In Greek, there's generally one word, not exclusively, but generally one word that is translated into Lord in the English language, and it has the meaning of a supreme master. So anytime you see Jehovah or Yahweh in the Old Testament or Adonai, that plural form of Adon, when they made the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they used this Greek word, which meant supreme master. And it brings out that Hebrew idea of someone who has absolute control. For this section, I am breaking into the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. It is an article written back in 1988 by R.E.O. White. And I had to look up what R.E.O. stood for because a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a song by R.E.O. Speedwagon, and I had no idea where the name of that band came from. And some of you may already know this, but it was new to me. REO Speedwagon was a truck back in 1915 that was designed by Ransom Eli Olds. R-E-O. So in the context of the band REO Speedwagon, that is referencing back to Ransom Eli Olds' version of a truck back in the early 1900s. But in today's article, REO White stands for the Reverend Reginald Ernest Oscar White. He's a man that wrote just a ton of books back in his day. And he also contributed the Lord article to the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. And it's in that article that the Reverend White says this, The resulting frequent reminder of God's rule and authority rests ultimately upon his creation and ownership of all things and people. But a military application is evident in such usages as the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. We see that in 1 Samuel 17.45 and again in 2 Samuel 16.2. And interestingly, it's in those contexts where the Ark of the Covenant is being used as a battle symbol. But White says that in other contexts, God's total supremacy over nature is emphasized by the title. For instance, over earthquakes, wind, and fire, we see that in 1 Kings 19. Over the stars in Isaiah, over beasts and monsters in Job, and over the primeval chaos in the book of Psalms. White also suggests that later prophets greatly extended Israel's faith in God as the Lord of history who directs the affairs of men and nations. The prophets also suggest that he was Lord of a universal morality. We see that in Amos and Ezra. But especially they referred to God as Lord in reference to him as the lawgiver or the judge of Israel. And it was his expressed will that represented the civil and religious constitution that demands absolute obedience. And where do we see that? Well, just go to the Ten Commandments. The introduction of the Ten Commandments begins, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
And I would just comment that God is introducing himself in that context, in other words, as a replacement to Pharaoh, who was Lord over these people for 400 years in slavery. Now God has brought them out of that condition and demands the same amount of absolute obedience that they were giving to their previous Lord. And I think this is a very important part of this concept of Lord that we need to stress in our current context. In the midst of living within a democracy where everyone has a voice and a vote in a 21st century context, where seemingly, at least recently, individuals can define words however they want, that is not the context, the cultural context, into which this concept of Lord was being used. In that original context, there was one definer of truth. There was one definer of terms and of usage. And that Lord was being presented as someone who demanded absolute obedience. And often we are not, even within the evangelical world, very comfortable with that level of devotion to a concept. So back to the White article. He says, in the Greek New Testament, this idea of Lord is also used of masters and husbands and rulers. It's used of God, not just the Hebrew God, but of pagan gods as well. We see that in 1 Corinthians 8.5. And probably most importantly for our study today, it is used of Jesus as not only a customary title of respect, uh, like the equivalent of Sir, we see that in Matthew 8.2 and again in 15.25, but it also retains its Old Testament associations of faith and reverence and worship. This title appears in phrases like the Lord Jesus, the Lord's Day, the Lord's Table, the Spirit of the Lord, who, according to 2 Corinthians 3.17, is also Lord. We see phrases like in the Lord, from the Lord, boast in the Lord. And White says, sometimes it's not clear whether God or Christ is intended. Like in Acts 9.31, where it says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. <laughs> so sometimes there might not be a real clear distinction between whether it's being used of God the Father or God the Son. But the title is attributed to Jesus himself. In John 13, 13, Jesus says this, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And in John 20, 28, when Thomas answers and says to him, My Lord and my God, Jesus accepts that title. White goes on to say in that article, speaking about Acts 2.21, the day of Pentecost, he says, In the first Christian sermon, Jesus' lordship is made central to salvation. It appears that the public confession of Jesus as Lord was the approved focus and expression of Christian faith and the basis of membership in the early church. And in that way, it could work its way into becoming more of just a formal statement than maybe a sincere expression of belief over what that word actually means. So, hence, 
the Bible also has warnings against it becoming just a simple formal statement. In Matthew 7.21, Jesus lets us know that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And again in Luke 6.46, Jesus asked the question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And then White comments on the overall context of the culture of Jesus's day. He says, in common usage, Lord, that title, reflected the slave system, and it implied absolute power exercised by the master over the purchased slave. So Paul unhesitatingly expounds the moral implications of Christian redemption. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7, Paul suggests that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit uh, collectively, and that we are not our own, suggesting that we have a Lord. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your collective body as the church, because we've all been purchased under one Lord. In 1 Corinthians 7.22, he says this, For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. And because we are slaves to the Lord, we should also remind ourselves not to become slaves of men. So White emphasizes that to Jewish minds, the title had messianic overtones of lordship and authority. And so Jesus's use of this title would have offended both Jews and Romans because politically, Lord was a title claimed by Caesar. And it is highly significant within that New Testament context into which the Bible was written that this King of Kings and Lord of Lords title was a demand for Caesar worship. White finishes his article this way, among Greek-speaking Jews of the dispersion, for whom Lord, this title, was the customary title for many gods of polytheism, the application of the title to Jesus would have identified him as belonging to the Godhead, and that would have been blasphemous. It would have demanded in that context, not just prayer to, but praise of and total devotion. On every level, therefore, the adoring tribute given to Jesus and used by Jesus in our context today was loaded, not just with spiritual meaning, but with positive and imminent danger. To round out today's episode, let's try and bring everything back together, fit it within the context of Matthew chapter 11 and 12. And the statement that we're putting back together is, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And while that statement is made in Matthew 12, 8, within the context of that gospel, we need to venture back into the last part of chapter 11 to see the broader context that leads up to Jesus making that statement. 
And it's interesting that back in Matthew eleven twenty five, Jesus starts by praising his Father, and he refers to God the Father as the Lord of heaven and earth. And he praises God because he has hidden certain things from the wise and intelligent of that age and revealed those things to infants. He then says in verse 27 that all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And when Jesus made this announcement, we need to understand that as Daniel chapter 7, son of man language, receiving a dominion. Everything's being handed over by the Lord of heaven and earth to this son of man character. And then it gets really interesting because with that nuance, Jesus goes straight into verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is one of those passages that I focus on rather heavily in chapter 4 of my book, And every time I get to talk about biblical rest, I somehow end up landing on these verses. And again, just to recap things that I've said in previous episodes, Jesus is not inviting the physical weariness and heavy ladenness of our lives to be cured. He is talking about the soul level. He brings that specificity out in what he says. So in other words, all of you who are weary and heavy laden in your souls— Jesus has the cure for that. He has the ability to offer humanity the rest that they were always supposed to experience. And how is that found? It's by taking a yoke upon us. And again, if we remember this lordship statement that's coming up, not just the son of man who has ultimate authority, but this concept of Lord who is a master of slaves, And masters often put yokes on their slaves. That's the metaphor that's used throughout the Bible. And Jesus, as Lord, is not demanding his yoke upon us, but he is offering it to us. And we willingly take this yoke on. And it's because that yoke is easy, and the burden that that yoke brings is light, that he can lead us into a place of rest for our souls. It's when we're being directed by our master and willingly giving up the ability to make decisions in our life that the world most commonly says are ours to make. It's in that circumstance that we find rest for our souls, the rest that we were created to experience. That's how Matthew chapter 11 concludes And in chapter 12, I'd just like to point out a couple things before we get to his statement. Jesus enters into a debate with some Pharisees, and he tells a story about David out of the Old Testament, compares himself to David. Again, cover that in my book in a little more detail than I'm going to today. But then he concludes that storytelling time with the Pharisees by saying something greater than the temple is here, which he was referring to himself. And in that context, that statement made to that group of people, the Pharisees, that would have been over the top. Matthew records later, and this is often missed because it's so much further down the page, but it's still in the same chapter. 
In Matthew 12, 41, Jesus makes the statement that something greater than Jonah is here. And then in the very next verse, he says something greater than Solomon is here. And in these three statements of Jesus that Matthew records in his gospel, Jesus has identified himself as greater than the temple, Jonah, and Solomon. And within the cultural context of his day, in that system, going back into the Old Testament as he did, Jesus is saying, I am greater than the whole sacrificial system displayed at the temple. I am better than all the prophets that came before me, like Jonah. And I am better than the one king that expanded the kingdom as big as it ever got, Solomon. Jesus is making large claims, and Matthew is recording them all together. This is highly significant. And it's that context. In the book of Matthew, in the culture of the first century Middle East, that Jesus then makes the statement, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And I think it's unfortunate that when we read that in our modern context, oftentimes we skip over the significance of the Son of Man claim and title, and we skip over the idea of Lord because it's not very convenient for our context. And when we read Sabbath there, We are often thinking of that practice of doing something different one day a week. And I just believe that in the context that we've just looked at within the book of Matthew and all the statements that Jesus makes about himself and what he's Lord over and what he's greater than, it would be highly unfortunate if we just thought Jesus was here to slightly change the practice of what we do one day a week. That's not the concept of Sabbath that Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to the entire theology of biblical rest, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. He's the fulfillment of not just one day a week, but extra days that were built into their calendar and every seventh year, and supposedly, even though they never really did it, every 50th year where slaves were released in the year of Jubilee and land was returned to its original owners. It's an Edenic picture of rest. Jesus is greater than all of those parts put together. He has something better for humanity than the ritualistic practice that we often associate as the entirety of the concept. When Jesus said that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, He was referring to his authority as that Son of Man, as the Messiah, as the King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Not to interpret the set of laws found in the Old Testament, but to supersede those laws in a greater way. To leave the shadows behind and to enter into a new type of reality, the fulfillment of those ideas. And within that context, the Sabbath referred to not just one day a week. Ultimately, Jesus sought to liberate people from the bondage to law and ritualism by revealing God's true intentions for their lives. Well, 
That's all I got for today. And hopefully this has been a good reminder, or maybe some of it was brand new information for you today, that when Jesus evokes the titles of Son of Man and Lord, he used those titles within a different cultural context than ours. With that Son of Man title, Jesus was drawing on an Old Testament understanding of a character, a human character, with supreme dominion and authority that would also experience suffering. And by combining that with the title of Lord, he was placing himself above all others who claimed that title for themselves. And if that's what Jesus really meant, we today in our 21st century democratic context, we should be certainly aware of that context when we agree with the statement that the Son of Man is certainly Lord of the whole idea of biblical rest. Well, thanks for making it all the way to the end. If you know somebody that needs to hear the message of this podcast, just go ahead and send it to them right now. Let them know that this is a podcast where we get deep into the biblical text and we study the original intent of what people said and what it meant. 